0: Good afternoon. My name is Eric Gomez. I'm the Director of Defense Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and welcome to the afternoon panel of our event on Building a Modern Military, which covers a new report released last week by the Cato Institute's Defense and Foreign Policy Department. Um, Joining me today are Brandon Valeriano, a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and the Marine Corps University Bren Chair for Innovation. He is also one of my co-authors on the report. We also have Thomas X. Uh, or TX Haymes, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Center for Strategic Research at National Defense University. We are going to be opening up with some quick remarks about what parts of, or or going over the white paper that we wrote, which you can find a link to on the event website. Um, If you would like to ask questions, you can either submit them via this website where you're watching on Slido, um, or via Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube using the hashtag uh, Cato FP, that's capital C, and then capital FP, all others lowercase. Um, so, to begin with, this section or this panel looks at a lot of the force posture issues that we go over in the report. Um, we basically looked at every single major combat branch of the US military that's Army, Navy, uh, Air Force, Marine Corps, and the nuclear deterrence section uh, to try and ind- identify what changes we would want to make to each of the branches. To help move the military toward a more restraint-friendly posture, um, the section that I wrote was the section on the future of strategic deterrence, which looks at how the United States thinks about strategic threats, namely nuclear threats, and what changes we might make to help reduce spending um, and also to uh, right-size the force in an era of sort of new COVID nineteen uh, budget realities. So the Three pillars that I think modernizing strategic deterrence depends on going forward are, number one, reducing the list of threats that we expect, deter- that we expect strategic deterrence to address. Uh, right now, and under the Trump administration, the list of things that the United States considers a major strategic threat has expanded rather than shrunk. Um, and that means that when you have that, you need to have a very large and diversified nuclear arsenal in order to meet many of the threats. And what I propose in the paper is that if we can figure out ways to deal with those threats via, if we can shorten the list of strategic deterrent threats to the United States via um, diplomacy, especially with countries like Iran and North Korea, to kind of reduce the threat that they pose or manage it, and then focus the military on a narrower set of issues, that would be another, that would be a really good first step. The second pillar of modernizing strategic deterrence is to think about ways that allies can be a greater contributor to defense against other great powers. Um, admittedly, this might work a little better in Asia uh, than Europe, where geography is a bit more favorable uh, to smaller allies with, with sort of less money to spend. But the, one of the core assumptions that I have is that if allies can do more, and they certainly can, and they certainly have an interest in doing more, it could help reduce some of the burden on the United States in region and allow us to rethink sort of how we structure the forces in region. Finally, the the third and final pillar of the report's recommendation for strategic deterrence is thinking through what kind of capabilities contribute to deterrence. Oftentimes in the United States, when we talk about deterrence, we talk about nuclear weapons. However, deterrence is just a concept. It's about increasing costs of action uh, that you don't want to see credibly, and that nuclear weapons can really help with that and they can really help deter certain things, but not all of them. So we need to think about how we can use other tools, especially modern conventional systems and other sort of defense dominant, uh, military systems to set up a deterrence by denial approach toward other great powers where the emphasis is on preventing them from accomplishing military objectives quickly. Um, And so those are the, I'll I'll end my uh, statements there about my segment of the report. We have a lot of get, we have a lot to get to and I really want to get to your questions so next we will turn uh to Brandon valeriano who was one of my co-authors on the report um, who uh, did a great job of just bringing the project together so Brandon the floor is yours
1: sure thank you um and i did want to say how great it was to work with the Cato team on this report very pleased with the outcome and uh, as many of you may know we're gonna look we look to do this every year from now on uh, I also want to echo the words of Chris Preble earlier. Um, this is an extraordinary time. Uh, we don't want to disrespect the peaceful protesters and their grievances. As General Mattis said yesterday, um, the protests are defined by tens of thousands of people who are insisting that we live up to our values, our values as people, and our values as a nation. Many of the issues we raise in this report are relevant today despite the dramatic transformation of American society recently. Every day brings a new challenge. The engagement of forever wars has altered American society in countless ways, leading the course to the militarization of the police force. The rampant and unchecked spending of the US military puts it above all aspects of American power and has led to an influx of surplus weaponry available to the police. The language of dominating the American battlescape or battle space is taken directly from strategic doctrines. Seeking to overmatch our adversaries, but our adversaries are not domestic, our adversaries are external. Now is really a time to focus on the specifics, though. What does the US military need to change in its force posture? We need a greater concern for the social well being of our troops. Operations within the US will not help the situation in the long run, and we need to think about the health and well being of our soldiers. There is a clear need to focus on innovation to move beyond the issues of raw manpower that dominates military force posture. This is even more critical now that funding will be limited. We will need to do more with less. This means a focus on specific offset technologies that can enable the defense. We also need to move beyond the current generation's weapons with all their limitations, both structurally and digitally. We need to find a better path, a more cost efficient path that will enable security both at home and abroad. The US military needs to streamline. It often fails to enable innovation. The Army Futures Command is an example and exemplar for other branches to follow to prioritize in- innovation. The military needs a multi domain battle system, but it does not need each branch of the US military to develop its own system without interoperable standards. We need a f- single and focused plan on these issues we need to revisit how the military funds innovation the current method is not working it's too slow it's not academic enough it's not risky enough there's not enough being done to supply the great minds of this country to enable them to push forward on innovation in terms of specifics also we want to look at each branch or we did look at each branch of the military Uh, The Army should seek to divest from from tanks and focus more on long-range precision fires, drones. Uh, We need to focus more on air and missile denial, given the advanced capabilities of our adversaries now. But more importantly, we need to reduce manpower needs. We need to move beyond this idea that manpower alone will fix it. The Navy, of course, needs to move beyond its 355 uh, naval force. This is law, but we cannot afford it before the pandemic, nor can we afford it after pandemic. Training and maintenance to avoid accidents and prioritize less expensive vehicles is also paramount. But one of the key goals is to end the Global Coast Guard. We need to encourage other nations to play a greater role in their regional defense. The Air Force um, force readiness overall is at an all-time low. We are spending more and getting less, and this is an unsustainable situation. Training and retention need to be a focus moving forward. And then, of course, our current generation of fighters don't meet the needs of the current service, nor are they going to meet the needs of the future service. We need to think more about unmanned vehicles and unmanned aircraft becoming a priority moving forward into the future. Finally, for the Marine Corps, they've taken a great step forward with the Commonwealth planning guidance recently. And the goal sometimes seems to be actually killing the sacred cows. We need to move on from amphibious platforms. Uh, There's also the goal of moving on beyond helicopters, recon, and thinking more about cheap autonomous naval systems. But more importantly, it's critical that we think about interoperability within the internal US military and not think about each branch as its own force. There's a lot we must do now. We've only uncovered the surface of these problems. We're going to move forward and press forward on these issues going to the, uh, moving to the future.
2: Okay. Um, I'm going to address the things I agreed, kind of an outsider, looking at the paper, address what I agreed with, it, and a couple of minor disagreements. The first and biggest things are the key assumptions that were required to change, I think, are extraordinarily spot on. Give up this dream of one sided overmatch. It's simply not attainable against a power like China, and it's a huge waste of money and effort to try for it. The other thing is budget and technology simply won't support this, so we're chasing an impossible uh, approach and should forget about it. So, the paper recommendations uh, one of the biggest is a joint warfighting concept. And in fact, the uh, joint staff, the J7 in particular, is working very hard on this. Extraordinarily hard. Each of the services have out their own uh, concept for warfighting. fighting, and the problem is they don't align. The biggest difference is in the concept of how you fight. Uh, while the everybody says they're going to be maneuverous, uh, the Air Force still can, sticks with the idea of a Joint Force Air Component Commander centrally controlling all air. And if the, you build a system that does that, you can't match it to the Navy Marine Corps system, which is very senior commanders will only be able to do temporary communication with the dispersed forces and you'll have to have mission orders where those dispersed forces are able to execute based on the plan. I think prioritizing innovation is an incredibly important piece. I am not as convinced we need a centralized joint system. We already tried that with joint forces command and it proved to be kind of a disaster. One of the reasons is there's a huge tension in that the purpose of a bureaucracy largely is to prevent change. It is developed to execute a certain process in a certain way, reliably, time after time. It is not designed then to change that process. And so to put a very large bureaucracy in charge of innovation almost begs defeat. There's a lot of good information, innovation literature uh, on this, and it can be pursued. But I think if we go, as long as the joint warfighting concept is written and people are working as separate services to that, I think they can make it work, um, as we did in a large way uh, for World War II. Paper also suggests prioritizing readiness, which is odd because that's in direct tension with innovation because readiness is extremely expensive and tends to drive money away from innovation, investment, in the future. Essentially, there's a bit of a call for a, Uh, analysis of missions and roles, and I think that's spot on. we got to do that. Now, the basis for reorganization, um, frankly, they're right in that neither history nor strategy suggests power projection into a nuclear armed state. Uh, When we consider our opponents, China and Russia, we're not going to project a lot of power into those states because they're nuclear armed. Um, Iran is not nuclear armed. But with our experience with 25 million uh, really angry Iraqis, we should really think hard before we decide to take on 75 million Iranians in much worse terrain. So, again, I agree with them that we've got to diff- think differently. Korea is one exception because if they initiate, it's a massive fight, we're already in it. But on the other hand, we should not be um, adding ground forces to that. South Korea, when mobilized, has 41 divisions, adding one or two or three or even five American divisions doesn't make sense. What instead we've got to do is get over uh, the US fixation with being on the offensive and instead work uh, at the fact we should be on the strategic offensive but the operational and tactical defensive because, as mentioned, um, the new generation of weapons favor defense. Now, force posture as opposed to force structure. Right now, we've been talking about force structure. What does the force look like? Posture is where is it located on the ground. And this is where distance is a fundamental issue both in Europe and in Asia. And I think the idea of deferring by uh, denial and punishment is absolutely right. Now, the national defense strategy says there are four layers, contact, blunt, surge, and homeland. Um, and I think that I'm still more in favor of that unless we are willing to completely abandon the international system, which is what the concentration on hemispheric defense. Now, this administration has done enormous damage and continues to do damage. That that concept of the international system. Uh, But I think it's too early to decide we want to rebuild our military. Let's see who comes in in the next uh, go around and what their position is. So the implications on that, if you go with the contact layer, those are the people out there training with our allies and friends. We must uh, increase them, but primarily to get buy-in from our allies. And part of that is if we go to cheaper, smarter weapons, as suggested. I did a paper through Cato about uh, three years ago on um, technology converges power diffuses that discusses specific weapon systems that are relatively cheap. Our allies can afford to purchase and make themselves more effective. And then we can uh, work with them on that. The blunt layer has to be mobile, low signature, and mostly self-sustaining. And we get that by banning some of these heavy platforms. One of the things suggested is long range fires Rather than going with standard platforms like MLRS or things that look like military systems, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Israelis have all pioneered firing missiles out of standard shipping containers. If you go to a standing shipping container, they're almost impossible to preempt because you can't kill all the shipping containers in a country. Um, That would be the blunt layer integrated with locals where possible, easier to move in and out. Uh, If the containers are built properly, they're multimodal. They can be fired by a ship at sea or taken ashore. When you go ashore, you can simply purchase the trucks from the commercial market, uh, along with uh, therefore your maintenance for those vehicles, your fuel for those vehicles, your food, your water, and even some of your medical support for your people. Um, Then the surge layer, that used to be our big stick. We surge forces for the United States. We have to seriously think that, but we'll have to fight our way in. The way we're doing it now simply doesn't work. It requires rigorous study, a rethink of both force structure Enforced posture, looking at what our allies need and how we can be close to them. And a new one is the homeland layer. We actually have to think about defending ourselves, not just nuclear weapons or ballistic weapons, but also things like cruise missiles launched off merchant ships can uh, threaten all U.S. facilities. This is a good place for our legacy system. I've been an opponent of the F-35 as being too short ranged and requiring airfields, but since we bought them, they can find a role in uh, defense. One of the most important things the paper says is optempo tempo is a choice. We don't need to be everywhere all the time. Therefore, reduce that tempo. By reducing tempo, you allow yourself to train for major conflict. And at the same time, you get well. I'm not going to discuss the individual uh, systems as have already been discussed or individual services, and we'll now go, I guess, to Q&A. All
0: right. Excellent. Thank you very much, TX. Um, I'm glad that you found a lot to agree with, even if you didn't quite agree with everything, but that's good. <laughs> Um, So we're going to move into Q&A now. Uh, I have a lot of good questions here, a couple of which are holdovers from the first session that would be more appropriate for us to address in this session. Um, For the first question, and I'd like Brandon Villarano to begin answering it. um, It's from an anonymous uh, person coming in through uh, our website. And it says, regarding the suggestion of using other foreign policy tools, what is your perspective regarding the utilization of offensive cyberspace operations as a means of deterrence and possibly foreign policy. Brandon, I know that you've written uh, a Cato Institute PA about uh, cyber issues. We don't get too much into cyber in this report, but I know it's something that I think we're gonna be producing a lot more work on uh, in the future. So Brandon, if you could uh, answer. Oh, and before you do real quick, uh, for anyone who wants to ask a question, you can submit one either through the tool on the event website, or if you're watching on social media, through the hashtag KatoFP. So Brandon, the floor is yours.
1: I feel this one is a bit unfair. And uh, is someone talking to me a softball here, I, I don't know. Uh, yes, I've written uh, along with Ben Jensen, the myth of the cyber offensive as a Cato policy analysis piece. And I also was on the cyberspace solarium commission as a senior advisor and had a large part in writing the report and In my time with the commission, in my time in looking at cyberspace operations, I am convinced that there is a role for offensive cyber operations, particularly in shaping the battle space and shaping the environment in which competition is uh, undertaken. But also, we need some clarity of strategy, we need clarity of demands, and we need clarity of signaling so the opposition knows what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. That's how coercion works. So offensive actions to impose cost with clear signaling of demands uh, and also a clear consideration of denial strategies to prevent uh, to enable the defense is critical, uh, but we have to be careful. I'm not going to say we have to be restrained, but we have to be clear on our intent. We have to evaluate the efficacy of our operations after the fact, and we have to have a clear strategy. If you have all these things, uh, offensive cyber operations can be useful. But we also have to be careful. Uh, My colleague and co-author Ben Jensen is doing a lot of work on military offsets. And he finds historically that military offsets, new technologies are supposed to alter the battle space, often lead states into war and bring about more security problems given the way that states handle these new weapons. So this is a dangerous concern and we have to be careful with how the US military leverages coercion in the modern system moving forward. Excellent.
0: Um, Our next question is from Matt Gillespie on Facebook, who asks, "What do you think of the Army's establishment of the Futures Command to address both short and long-range R and D?" I will say that Futures Command issues is something that we talk about um, at length in this in this paper. Um, So I think to to ask that um, first, we'll start with TX. uh, But what do you think about this concept of Futures Commands and Uh, having them maybe even for more services in order to keep on expanding R&D.
2: Well, then this comes to that fundamental tension between what bureaucracies are designed to do and asking them to innovate. And I'm not sure that that works. Um, If you look at uh, Millett and Murray's work on innovation in the interwar period, it's generally not a big centralized bureaucracy that changes how it fights. What uh, combined is innovation combined with new technology? Senior officer who provides cover, like Moffat was chief of naval air for I think six or eight years, and he provided cover, and then a way to bring in mid-level officers to provide that sustainment. And then, of course, you've got to get some interest from industry. All of those things come together. I tend to be skeptical of all bureaucracies, uh, just because I've been in them for too long. And so I would be really careful about that. I think the Marine Corps has already got its own at Quantico uh, in the Marine Corps Development and Education Center. And I think smaller is better. And it's got to be uh, away from the flagpole is a good thing. And innovative in reaching out is a good thing. But you've got to overcome uh, the personnel system. The personnel system in all services is actively hostile to innovation. And that's probably where you have to start. Thank you, TX. Um,
0: the next question is from uh, another anonymous uh, person uh, using the our, our web tool asking if the U.S.'s recent withdrawals from arms limitations treaties affect uh, our thinking, and if so, how? I'll take that one uh, since that's that's sort of my issue area. Um, I think that the especially the Trump administration's op- opposition to arms control treaties is going to make a lot of nuclear strategy harder for the United States going forward. Um, the three big ones, or the three, there's four big agreements, three of which are either dead now or on the chopping block. Um, the first being the Iran nuclear deal or JCPOA that Trump is trying to uh, pull the U.S. out of. Um, I think that is a great example of that first pillar that I talked about in my remarks. The JCPOA wasn't completely perfect. It didn't address all of the things the US needed to or the US wanted to address. However, in the nuclear realm, I think it did a great job of significantly reducing the threat of an Iran armed with a nuclear weapon, at least for a good period of, I believe, 10 years or so, depending on when different provisions of the agreement ran up. I think that's a big success. And I think that should be a model for how the US deals with nuclear threats that come out of you know, the so-called rogue states like Iran and North Korea. Um, you obviously can't quite have that approach with a China or a Russia who are more established powers, but using diplomacy and arms control in that way to manage those uh, sort of peripheral or relatively minor threats is an important thing. So then you can focus your efforts on the more serious things like Russia and China. The other agreements that have been, that Trump has withdrawn from include um, the INF treaty, the intermediate range nuclear forces treaty. Uh, For that one, I understand why the Russians were in violation of it. Um, However, because of withdrawing from that treaty and the recent announcement that the Trump administration wants to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty puts pressure on the new START agreement, which is the last sort of pillar of U.S.-Russia nuclear arms control remaining, and Trump needs to extend it, or Trump or a follow-on U.S. administration or a Biden administration, depending on what happens in November, would have a relatively Short period of time to try and extend the agreement. And all of these are very important for providing insight into Russian activities, for providing uh, a sense of predictability when it comes to force posture planning in the US to keep the cost of our nuclear modernization somewhat under control. And so I think it's a very useful framework. Using diplomacy in that way can be a very useful tool for having the United States. Uh, when it comes to, for the United States to have when it comes to planning for forced posture and doing our own deterrence planning. Um, and so I would hope that we could continue to see arms control as a strategic tool for good rather than I think some more and more folks these days are in Washington are considering as more of a handout or more of a concession to potential adversaries. And it does involve compromises and trade-offs, but it's an important tool for strategic competition as well. Um, Oh, uh, this is going back to uh, an, an earlier question, but I see that Brandon Valeriano wanted to weigh in on the issue of uh, innovation in the futures command. So Brandon, if you want to address that, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, let me take that real quick. We are not encouraging more bureaucracy. In fact, we are advocating for the reduction of bureaucracy. And the, the way we would do that is that basically there needs to be a streamline of how we enable innovation in the DoD and among the military branches. Um, Each branch has its own idea or vision of the future. The DoD has its Defense Innovation Unit. Uh, We held up the Army Futures Command as an exemplar, mainly because of the leadership they seem to provide in terms of their targets and their goals, which seems to be a little bit more useful um, in some ways. And uh, I work directly across the street with Mick Will and the Futures Command at the Marine Corps University, and they are more focused on wargaming and testing innovations. So, there's a lot that can be done, but I think there's a lot of overlapping structures and a lot of overlapping bureaucracy. And the greatest example is the multi-domain battle system, which each branch is developed in their own system. But the problem is, when we try to combine each branch together for joint operations, that's when things are going to break down. We are spending too much on innovation because we're not streamlining how we think about innovation. We're spending too much about innovation because there's too much bureaucracy. There's too much red tape. That's why we also uh, highlighted the Kessel Run Initiative in the Air Force, uh, which is supposed to streamline impossible tax in a short period of time. I know there's some debate about the Star Wars reference, but that's the basic idea. And that's what we want to encourage, streamlining and avoiding bureaucracy. Thank you, Brandon. Um, TX, I wanted to ask you a question
0: about uh, the role of unmanned systems in the force posture of the future. Like you mentioned, you wrote a really great report uh, for us several years ago. Um, it was actually one of the uh, sort of first major PAs that I had the pleasure of sort of doing final copy editing on when I came to Cato uh, many years ago. So I, I, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, what kind of role do you see unmanned systems playing in the military posture of the future and beyond the unmanned systems what are some of the other things that have to go into that to make them effective especially i'm interested in things like uh, communication systems or um, leadership or the application of ai and potentially taking people out of the loop Um, I just know that uh, you've thought about this a lot. And so I'd really love to hear your thoughts on it.
2: Yeah. In a nutshell, the thesis is the small, smart, and many are going to kill our few and exquisite. We have built ever more exquisite systems and fewer and fewer of them. And one of the problems with two of our, well, actually three of our biggest systems, the F-35, the B-21, and the carrier are rapidly becoming functional. Uh, obsolete. The F-35, because it's very short-legged and requires a big airfield. Now, we have drones out there that have been flying for 10 years that are fully autonomous, the uh, Israeli Harop, which has a 600-mile range, which is about the same as the F-35, but it costs under $500,000. So with the price of an F-35, remember, just purchase price, I could have uh, 200 of these drones. Uh, there are cheaper commercial ones that could also destroy an F-35 underground for under 200,000 apiece. So I could have 500 of these drones. Now, since the F-35 is gonna land somewhere where we know it will be because it requires a significant airfield and significant sport activity, it's very vulnerable to attacks by these swarms of relatively cheap weapons. You don't actually need com. We've got the AI good enough for onboard AI to fly to a location, locate it, and then attack based on visual recognition, uh, overlap with thermal. And then an EW can be added to it, which is what the HAROP uses. The carrier is the most delicate flower ever put to sea. If I can get a third pound warhead next to an aircraft parked on a carrier deck, I can get a secondary on the aircraft fuel and any ordnance that's loaded. We know from the Forestall and uh, Enterprise fires and Oriskany that that takes the carrier out of action for between a week and nine months. So, what are we doing building these $20 billion systems? When there are much much cheaper ways to do that, and of course the B-21's huge vulnerability is there will be a limited number. The idea we're going to get 100 is one of the odder fantasies of, I've seen out of the Air Force. Uh, we were planning for 100 B-2s. We got 19 operational ones, and the fact is, if you only have 20 or 30 of these bombers, then they can be hunted by cruise missiles launched from merchant ships. Uh, the current caliber class missile will go 1,500 miles against a land target. If you do a range circle from the Gulf of Mexico and the West Coast of the United States and the East Coast of the United States, there is no bomber base that is safe from being attacked by this type of system. So we've got these uh, antiquated systems that are very expensive and very limited capability, frankly. The F-35 goes 600 miles. The SQ-58A, uh, Q- uh, a drone that is being built by Kratos, will go 1,500 miles. Now it doesn't carry as much, but because it's vertical takeoff and landing, it's almost impossible to hunt it. Cruise missiles at 1,500 miles, the Russians have them, we should be able to have them. Uh, And this is where I disagree on the treaty. The INF had to go away so that we can deter China with conventional cruise missile weapons, which are ideal for that environment. Um, The rest of the treaties I'm fine with keeping in place. But that's the type of process you use, lots and lots of relatively inexpensive weapons That can blend into the background by being launched out of uh, containers. You've got about 10 minutes from the time, the container lid comes off, you go, oh, that's not a shipping container, that's a weapon system. Get a warhead on it before its missiles are gone, and there's nothing you can do about it except try to intercept the missiles. I think that's the process we've got to look at. Uh, We could also bring down the cost of deterrence a great deal and uh, save a huge amount of money. As you mentioned, the biggest problem uh, in the earlier session, the biggest problem is not the ideas in the Pentagon, but getting it through Congress. Just the suggestion we would not refuel a nuclear carrier always brings out the knives in Congress, and I'll leave it at that.
0: Thank you for bringing up Congress, because one of the questions in our queue here is, is related to that issue um, from uh, Philippe uh, Capet, I apologize if I mispronounced that, um, asking from YouTube. Uh, what are some of the ways to build support for reform among vested interests like defense contractors or companies and legislatures? Um, To ask, to add something on to uh, Philippe's question, uh, that sort of the flip side of that coin of building support, Um, what do you see as some of big points of resistance to more innovative change, Uh, especially I'm thinking like the Marine Corps' 2030 force posture, which outlines a pretty bold uh, adjustment to the Marine Corps' force structure, but now has to make it through Congress and NDAA cycles and appropriations hearings and all that. Uh, So, Brandon Valeriano, if you could uh, begin uh, responding to that question.
1: Uh, Then that's a huge challenge because quite often, and I'm not necessarily speaking about the Marine Corps now, but quite often each branch of the military is given ships or given platforms that they don't necessarily want. And the bureaucratic push, especially through Congress, has been relentless uh, to increase military spending. And that's not exactly the desire of our military forces from time to time. The greater desire for many of them is a more increased focus on social welfare programs, on education programs, on improving bases, on pay. These are the things our true demands. Not every branch of the military is demanding a new version of the F-35. Not every branch of the military is demanding a new version, of the latest high-tech uh, you know, tool in the, in, the, in the quiver that we have. And we have to be careful because the way our system is set up, it is set up to enable rampant spending, and that's something we need to rein in.
0: Um, thank you. TX, did you have anything you wanted to add on this?
2: Yeah, I think the key is um, it's going to come out of Congress, and the key is going to be to build alternate centers. For instance, Kratos, on their own money, built this new drone, and it has real potential in the Air Force is starting to test it. So you start to build a coalition of Congress people around that, senators and representatives who have a vested interest in those systems. As you move to 3D printing, there are, there are centers of excellence, 3D printing, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, Colorado, where there are not big defense industries, these could create alternative uh, pressure to provide investment. And then you go to the historical pattern with new technologies and new concepts. And normally it starts out as a helper to the existing system, then it becomes a full partner and then a replacement. Uh, The airplane first started spotting over the horizon to find the enemy fleet for the battleship. By the mid 1930s, it was an equal partner. And then by 1942, it had completely replaced the battleship as the main weapon. We see that happening with aerial drones now. Uh, Drones are essentially a cruise missile is a drone. When you look at it, we no longer send manned aircraft into high-risk areas, we send cruise missiles. Uh, Drones do the long-term surveillance in low-risk environments. So we're beginning to see this transition. You've got to pick the areas where the transition is succeeding, build a political coalition around it, and try to make it work. As far as who are the opponents, obviously the current manufacturers, Lockheed Martin doesn't like this stuff much, Um, the big shipbuilding people won't like doing away with carriers, etc. So you've got to build against a very powerful coalition there. And then within the services there will be the normal resistance. Military leaders are inherently conservative because they're risking lives when they try something new, Uh, but it'll take time and it'll take experiments. And then a well-laid, well-argued display followed by lots and lots of field exercises to prove this stuff works.
0: Thank you. Um, I'll add some, some observations that I've had. Uh, so when I came to Cato about five years ago, I, I started there in, in uh, August, 2015. It has been a very remarkable experience to see how many other folks in DC, including among think tanks or academic institutions or even on the Hill, sort of shift some of their perspectives and some of their rhetoric about foreign policy and military policy towards things that Cato has been saying, or scholars at Cato have been saying for a very long time. Um, It's been very heartening. Uh, And I think that, I hope that this project can help us keep building on that by by saying, all right, look, we're going to take a look at this in terms of uh, sort of branch by branch, try and lay out this idea of operationalizing restraint, kind of taking discussions that we've traditionally had at the thirty thousand foot level and bringing them a bit down closer to the ground and talk about what are things you can actually um, fund or what the things are you could actually do rather than just what things you shouldn't um so that's been a very uh, promising development and i think that when it comes to convincing legislatures especially or legislators especially of the value of making these kinds of changes I think that is going to be an important piece that just the ideas about restraint have started to gain some more popularity um, in the American political system over the last several years. Um, and also that COVID-19 and the sort of economic and budgetary effects of that might also present an opportunity or or a, a period for Congress to really evaluate what to prioritize. Um, this is having a very the pandemic and the response to it is having a very important impact on the budget process and on the deficit. And traditionally, I, America hasn't really shied away from deficit spending. Um, but I think the what really what the pandemic really drove home uh, for myself and I think for my fellow co-authors of this report is that there's a lot of stuff out there that can threaten American lives that doesn't have a military solution. Um, and that having a perception of national security and national strategy, that can take into account those things and figuring out what non-military tools are needed to effectively respond to them is very important. Uh, So I think that those, that dual uh, phenomenon of more support for restraint within the US political system and also the budgetary effects of the pandemic might help uh, overcome some of this resistance to considering larger change or painful prioritization that is True, truly like getting the vesting of some systems to focus on others. Um, so those are just my uh two cents on that. Um, so for the next question, uh, from the audience, um, there's one here from an anonymous uh user. Um, given the record of abject failure by the United States military intervention in the Middle East in this century, uh, is there Hope for improvement and i know this is something that uh that cato foreign policy scholars have have tried to talk about for many years of, of you know reducing focus on the middle east and trying to uh prioritize on other theaters um for i guess brandon can start us off uh do you see any kind of effective way to kind to truly divest of certain regions or reduce military presence in certain regions in order to free up resources for for going elsewhere or to just uh, save defense money?
1: Yeah, I see dramatic change in the military, uh, especially starting with the NDS and moving on and the strategies we're developing to counter China, the strategies to Marine Corps and the Navy are developing for sea operations in the Pacific. This demonstrates massive change uh, and a step away from the wars in the Middle East, which is good, but then moving from the wars in the Middle East to a potential great power conflagration with a little clear at stake in terms of defending the homeland is uh, very much problematic. I would really hope that when we move forward into the future, we start to think more about how we defend ourselves and how we defend our infrastructure and how we defend our way of life and our values. And I think that's a critical thing that we need to start to focus on, that we can move beyond the forever wars. We can move beyond these sorts of old and new cold wars. But the question is what do we focus on now what do we do next where do we spend our attention or our energies? these are the deep conversations we need to have as americans and we're just beginning to have them maybe in ways we don't want to have right now but this is why these conversations are so important
0: uh great uh tx is there anything uh you'd like to add to that point
2: yeah i think there's a fundamental argument whether we do uh, coming back to hemispheric defense or we continue to fend forward, that is a fundamental question that is being argued out. One of the things that we're overlooking is that deglobalization had actually already started before COVID. If you look at trade statistics, if you look at uh, where things are made, what services, where they're produced, uh, and even the flow of money globally had decreased quite significantly uh, starting in about 2010, of course, money in 2008. That is a long-term trend that I've written about. Um, COVID is going to increase that. The problem that is, is as the U.S. becomes moves the manufacturing onshore, moves services onshore, we're already energy independent. Effectively, there's some problems with the refining capacity uh, and food independent. Then more and more Americans are going to say we don't want to be in the world anymore. We're just tired of doing that. I've got schools in my home county that need fixing. I don't need to build any schools in Iraq or Afghanistan. So that is a political pressure that I think a lot of the debate is overlooking uh, as we become more independent and less globalized, more regionalized. There is gonna be a significant, I think, grassroots push for that approach. Whether you think it's right or not, you have to be aware that it's there and I think will be growing.
0: All right, thank you very much. So we only have a couple minutes uh, left in the broadcast. So I think uh, for the sake of time I'm just going to move uh, into some closing statements. Um, first off, thank you uh, to everyone who tuned in on various social media platforms and uh, and to the website to watch this event. We really appreciate you sticking around uh, for, for both sessions. Um, I encourage you to read the report. There's a lot in it that uh, the two panels were not quite able to get to because of just the the time restriction and the, and the raw sort of size of, of the undertaking, um, and I think that as you know, somewhat selfishly as a, the direct, the new director of defense policy studies here at Cato, um, this is the start of a lot more work. We are going to be doing at Cato defensive foreign policy. I think we're going to be doing a lot more in this sort of space. Um, I myself am very interested. In that, I, that idea I mentioned earlier of trying to operationalize restraint, and this is a good first cut at that. Um, and I'm going to con- I'm looking forward to continuing that sort of line of work with folks like Brandon um, and Lauren and other outside contributors to the Cato Institute. Uh, there is a definite shift, like I said earlier, in the discussion about foreign policy options and about military options in this country. And I hope to continue Cato's track record of being at the forefront of these discussions and offering really substantive recommendations for our policymakers. Um, so thank you again, all, all of you, so much for uh, attending today. If you'd like to read the full report, then you can find a link to it on our on this event website. Uh, it should be uh, hyperlinked both in the, the text of the, of the event description and also at the bottom of the website. And you can also find uh, the, the report if you... Just search Cato Institute Building a Modern Military. So thank you all so much for coming. I'm looking forward to seeing you at many future Cato events like this. Have a great day.